Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. The Congo. The name is associated with a country of considerable history, but it is not very well known. Say Congo to John Q. Public on the street, and chances are they've heard of it, but only know it's somewhere in Africa. Pick the country most associated with all things Africa, the Dark Continent, and chances are Congo would be it. Jungles, animals, grasslands, danger, adventure, all descriptive of what comes to mind. Many couldn't find it on a map. The name conjures up mystery, images of an exotic, stereotypical African country that hasn't yet reached the level of civilization. Say Congo, and jungles might come to mind. I remember once telling someone where I grew up, and they were trying to figure it out in their head. Confusion was all over his face. But then I said, you know, where Tarzan was from. And he responded, oh yeah, now I know. But certainly, lots of unknowns and questions prevail from the person who is presented with the word Congo. When I tell people I'm from Congo, they don't know what to think. They don't know how to identify anything about their American way of life and tie it to how Congolese live. What is the story of Congo and how did it come to be? It's been in the news for various reasons over the years, so now with the internet and 24-7 cable TV, much more information is available for anyone that wants to learn about the country. I've posted many podcast episodes so far about my growing up years in the Congo. It was at the suggestion from my friend Tim that I share the history of Congo. Not many know how it came to be in its history to get to this point. The country has quite a story. I would even go so far as to say it's an epic tale. And when this series of episodes on the history of Congo is over, I'm sure you'll agree that it's been a war-torn, harrowing, tumultuous, and epic journey since it came to the forefront in the late 1800s. A long, tragic, bloody history of a country with hundreds of tribal groups that have been fodder and collateral for its natural resources. It's been said Congo has $23 trillion worth of minerals to be mined, yet it is one of the poorest countries in the world. Copper, ivory, slaves, diamonds, rubber, coltan, cobalt, and uranium are some of the key resources that have been fought over, had blood shed over, and been pilfered with little of the profit going to the people of the country. And even in 2021, warlords and gangs and other countries are involved in the exploiting of Congo's natural resources, particularly in the eastern part of the country bordering Uganda and Rwanda, while the average person barely has enough to feed himself or his family. There will be several episodes to tell the whole story from when Congo was discovered by the Europeans. It started with King Leopold II of Belgium negotiating for his personal ownership of the area now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. He exploited the people and resources for his personal fortune, then turned Congo over to the country of Belgium. It was a Belgian colony for over 50 years when it gained independence in 1960. The story continues on to the rebellion and coup d'etat in 1965 when President Mobutu took over. Then to the name change to Zaire in 1971 to the long dictatorship of President Mobutu. Then the story of Congo's history continues to the civil war in the late 1990s 
that eventually took Mobutu out, then on to the rebel leader Joseph Kabila, then Kabila's son taking over for 17 years, and then him being replaced in 2018 by one of the first legitimate public voting opportunities in the country's history. Richard, could you find the Democratic Republic of Congo on a map? No, if I had to, I really had to look for it to find it. Do you know if Congo is a poor country or a rich country? I can't give a straight answer on that because I don't know the, um, the, the country that well. What do you know about its history? Nothing. What is Congo known for regarding exports or natural resources? That I do not know. Have you ever heard of King Leopold? No, I do not. Do you have any other facts about Congo that you'd like to share? No. <laughs> Tim, could you find Congo on a map if there were no names? I could. Is it a big country or a small country relative to the African continent? It's a big country. Are the people relatively poor, middle class, or wealthy compared to other African countries? I would think middle class compared to other African countries. What do you know about its history? I know almost nothing about Congolese history. Do you know what Congo is known for relating to exports or natural resources? Something to do... rubber. I think they make either rubber or cork come out of Congo. You ever heard of King Leopold II? I have not. Ever heard of Mobutu? I have not. Do you know what European country colonized Congo? I'm going to guess Denmark. Any other facts about Congo that you'd like to share? My buddy Jeff has a, a podcast that speaks about Congo, and I love his podcast. So there is what several people have to offer regarding their knowledge of Congo. So let's start the tale of the history of Congo. A lot was going on in the area that we refer to as Congo in the early 1800s. Trade in African elephant ivory was a huge part of the exploitation. Slaves as well. Traders came from Egypt down through Darfur and Khartoum to collect ivory and slaves and to take them back. The biggest trade hub was Zanzibar, an island in the Indian Ocean off of Tanzania. The Sultan of Oman settled there in 1832 to control the trade. Ivory and slaves were shipped to the Arabian Peninsula, the Middle East, India, and China. They pressed further inland to get their product, eventually into the area of eastern Congo. And on the northern side of Congo, another trading family ruled supreme. They started with arrangements with villages for procuring slaves and ivory, but eventually just decided that to pillage the people and villages was easier and more profitable. They had firearms, which were no match for the village folks in the interior. Word about the ivory and trade and other resources reached Europe and peaked exploration. The New York Herald and the Daily Telegraph of London commissioned Henry Morton Stanley to carry out the mother of all exploratory expeditions, crossing Central Africa from east to west. This would be a staggering journey through swamps, hostile tribal territories, and river rapids. In 1874, Henry Stanley's trip would commence and lead him through Africa to the Congo River and on to the western coast of Africa. It was a three-year journey that started with 224 people and ended with just 92 that ultimately reached the Atlantic Ocean. 
Little did he know that having crossed the continent, mapping lakes and rivers, and seen the resources, the report of his expedition would impact the European influence on Central Africa, forever changing the lives of millions of people, and not necessarily for the better. On a lighter note, Stanley's name is often associated with the awkward question he posed when he encountered Dr. David Livingstone. David Livingstone had gone to Congo to serve as a missionary, physician, and explorer in the 1860s, and seemingly had been lost. When they did finally meet, being the only two Caucasians for thousands of miles, Stanley turned to him and said, quote, Dr. Livingstone, I presume, unquote. Stanley's discoveries in taming the Central African continent by his exploration brought industrialization and exploitation. Europe wasn't yet interested in colonizing Congo as that meant resources and considerable money. England had colonized India. France had ruled over Indochina. The Dutch ruled over Indonesia. The Philippines were in Spanish hands. And England had colonized the eastern part of North America. Europe had its tentacles all over the world at this point. Enter Belgium. Belgium's formation is a story unto itself. In the early 1800s, the major nations in Europe agreed to form a new country called a mini-state, and they called it Belgium, to be a buffer between Prussia, France, and England. This was the area where the Battle of Waterloo was fought. Then, in 1830, Belgium declared itself independent. Nobody paid attention to this lightweight country. The new king, Leopold I, was content with his small kingdom. His son, King Leopold II, wasn't. He had ambitions and wanted a colony. He checked out many areas for colonization, Borneo, Vietnam, Taiwan, and other places. But when he began to get reports in 1875 about Central Africa from Henry Stanley and other explorers, he began to lick his chops at the opportunity for finances and glory for his fledgling country. So, to execute his plan, he brought together 35 explorers, geographers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the status of Central Africa for a four-day conference. When word came of Stanley's crossing the continent shortly thereafter, Leopold II knew that he was the key for executing his plan to dominate and control Central Africa. So, in 1879, at the king's expense, Stanley began another five-year trip to explore and document the continent. It was during this trip that he began to make treaties with chiefs and tribal leaders all throughout the area. Hundreds of treaties were made, and all of them turned over all sovereignty of property, fishing rights, toll-keeping, and trade to King Leopold. The village chiefs didn't know this, as the contracts were written in French, and they did not know what the word perpetuity meant. In short, they were schnookered big time and didn't even know it. All of Europe by now was tasting blood of securing their peace of the African continent. The mounting competition was rising. Portugal was trying to reassert itself in Angola. France was in several areas and other countries as well. Politics and rivalries started to flare up in Europe. There was a scramble for Africa in effect. Thus, Otto von Bismarck, a young German leader, but one of the most powerful in Europe, called a meeting of the European superpowers to meet in Berlin. An additional 10 more meetings were held over the next three years to figure out how to allocate the continent. The main principles of discussion were, number one, occupation, and number two, ensuring free trade. Interestingly enough, King Leopold II never attended a single meeting, yet it was backroom deals that ruled the day. 
Since King Leopold had established several stations throughout the greater Congo area through his proxy, Henry Stanley, he asserted that he was entitled to the entire area of what we now know as Congo. After considering Leopold's assurance of free trade, factoring in his small country status and financial weakness, and low political stature on the European continent, von Bismarck signed the deal. Besides, having this huge buffer zone between the other areas controlled by the Germans, French, and English would hopefully assure peace between the rivals. The other countries followed suit and signed the deal. So that is how the king of a tiny, non-influential country in Europe came to control the key coastline where the Congo River meets the Atlantic. Then it goes hundreds of miles north and south and almost 900 miles to the east where the border hits the Great Lakes. Congo is about one-tenth of the entire continent, encompassing 1.4 million square miles. It's about one-third the size of the mainland United States of America. It was June 1, 1885, and it was the first day that King Leopold II was sovereign over the new state, called the Congo Free State. Please note that this was not a colony with a mother country and daughter colony. No, this was his personal property. As King of Belgium, he had constitutional limits to his power and authority. In the Congo Free State, he was supreme ruler. It was his playground. He would rule over it for 23 years. The exploitation began. Ivory by the ton was collected inland, shipped down the river, and then out to Europe and Asia. In 1897 alone, 270 tons of ivory were exported to Europe. Piano keys, billiard balls, dominoes, and other items all contained ivory from Congo. Leopold then formed his own army called the Force Publique, or the Public Force. Order had to be maintained in the Congo Free State. It was turning into the Wild West. Skirmishes happened along the borders. Corruption was happening, and with so much money on the line, Leopold needed to maintain order. Then, in 1888, the inflatable rubber tire was invented by John Dunlop. Interestingly, he was a veterinarian, not an engineer by trade. This fantastic invention, which we all enjoy today on cars, bicycles, and motorcycles, would impact millions of Congolese, Yet nobody had any idea at this point the number of lives affected. This would change everything for the Congo Free State and its people. Unfortunately, it would be for the worse. The Congo jungles had rubber trees and rubber vines, lots of them. This liquid gold became highly sought after. So quotas were set to collect the sap and the rubber latex. Coercion for more and more turned to threats and then to death. When the rubber collectors showed up for their baskets of rubber latex, if the weight quota wasn't achieved, the person was flogged, or worse, the villager's hand was cut off, or his foot. That escalated to outright killing and pillaging and burning of villages if their quota of rubber collection wasn't met. Alternatively, if a village didn't generate the required rubber, the women and children were hauled off and imprisoned until the men collected enough latex to free their wives and kids. This was forced labor at its worst. The family unit... The village unit was turned on its head. Tens of thousands were injured, imprisoned, flogged, had their hands and feet cut off, were beheaded, were raped and killed, all for the lust of rubber latex. The private army was given bullets for their firearms and had to account for every bullet shot, thus to show their superiors that they'd use the bullets in the quest for more rubber and not for shooting animals to eat. If they were issued 10 bullets, 
they'd return for more ammunition with ten cut-off hands as proof of their allotment being used for the furtherance of King Leopold II's rubber collection. Remember, Congo wasn't a colony. It was the personal property of King Leopold II, and the ivory and rubber were financing his personal fortune and building his palaces back in Belgium. Word started to get out about the atrocities. Protestant missionaries were witness to the killings and the amputations. Edward Morrell, an employee of a British shipping company, saw the disparity of rubber coming in from Congo and guns and ammo going back. These weapons were for Leopold's army to ensure compliance to the rubber quotas. He saw that this was plundering and not bilateral trade. He then started writing and publishing stories to create awareness and disgust about all the goings-on. A full podcast episode could be devoted to this man's relentless pursuit of the truth and to end this horrible regime. Kudos to him for bringing it to an end sooner than later. Pressure was mounting, and in 1904, a commission was sent to investigate the allegations of malfeasance. It came back affirmative. The Free State of Congo was a financial enterprise without regard for the natives. After the report was published, international pressure was such that King Leopold II had to cede the Free State of Congo to Belgium. In 1906, the decision was made to cut him loose, and after two years of delays, in 1908, he turned the Free State of Congo over to Belgium. To create some perspective of King Leopold II's legacy, in 1880, there were an estimated 20 million people living in Congo. By 1920, there were just 10 million people left. If you are interested in more specifics to King Leopold's reign over the Congo Free State, I urge you to watch the movie titled White King, Red Rubber, Black Death. It is a well-done documentary on King Leopold's impact on the country. It's heavy and dark and revolves around the disturbing subject, so I'd recommend not watching it before you go to bed, as you might have trouble falling asleep. But it does reflect the history and the impact of one man on a huge part of the African continent. Ironically, King Leopold II never set foot on the African continent, much less in Congo. All those years of exploitation and profit, and he never saw his personal playground or the negative impact of his exploits on the people. And all the way up until King Leopold's death, never once did he admit his wrongdoing or moral responsibility to what he'd done to devastate the millions of people in Congo. What a horrible human being. So in 1908, Congo became a colony of Belgium. The purpose and intent of colonies is to bring technology, Western civilization, and industry to the colony and reinvest the profits of that back into the country for the betterment of both the colony and its mother country. This was completely opposite of what King Leopold II did, as he was a murderous leech for his own personal gain. So Belgium began to organize the labor to commence mining in the south part of the country, organized labor to build railroads to transport the copper and other minerals to the port on the Atlantic Ocean for shipping around the world. They discovered uranium, which would be in high demand in the 1940s as part of the war effort. They saw the potential for agriculture, thus coffee, cocoa, tobacco, and red palm oil plantations were started. As a little factoid for you, Mr. William Lever started making soap with red palm oil, and thus in 1911 he cut a deal for getting it from Congo for his soap factory. We now know that company as Unilever. All these industries needed laborers, so people were put to work and paid accordingly, unlike before. However, it wasn't all lollipops, rainbows, and unicorns. 
As villages were displaced for the agricultural endeavors and the typical village life was changing quickly as people left to work in factories or on large farms and plantations. Working conditions were tough and taxes were introduced. The culture was changing and this only sped up as urban centers sprung up. The colonizers came down from Belgium to seek their fortune and a new life. They introduced education, reading, writing, a new work ethic, and taxes. Yet there was still a huge chasm between the Belgian or European plantation owner and the Congolese. Think the United States in the 1940s and 1950s between the Negroes and the whites. This new colonization had turned a new generation into feeling that they were powerless without the colonizer's money, work, and taxes. They were subservient, treated like children, oppressed, and had lost their dignity from a mere generation prior. Their village life and culture was changing, and changing fast. Missionaries of Protestant and Catholic persuasions were throughout the country, educating the population, opening hospitals, and the like. Christianity was becoming prevalent. Kids learned how to read and write. They learned math and history and other subjects. And the Belgians brought modernization. The roads were good. There was electricity. And in fact, many of the conveniences of Europe were in Leopoldville, the capital of Congo. There was even an electric bus service for public transportation in the late 1950s in Congo. Kasavubu, an influential Congolese, wrote the following to capture the social construct of the time. And I quote, The Belgians must realize, above all, that their dominion over Congo will not last forever. We ask the Europeans to abandon their attitude of disapproval and racial segregation to avoid the ongoing aggrievement to which we are subjected. We also ask them to abandon their condescending attitude, which is an offense to our self-respect. We do not like to be treated as children all the time. Please understand that we are different from you and that even as we assimilate the values of your civilization, we also wish to remain ourselves. We want to be civilized Congolese, not Europeans with a black skin. Unquote. Meanwhile, some Congolese leaders seized the time to start to question the status quo. How long would the state of being a colony last? Another prominent political leader named Patrice Lumumba started his rise to fame. He spent some time in Belgium. He later stole some money from the post office where he was employed and went to prison. This one-year prison stint would later elevate him further in his political career. By the late 1950s, the drumbeat for independence began to beat. Kasavubu and Lumumba were at the forefront of the rallies and political push. On January 4, 1959, a huge rally was to have been held. But when the folks showed up, they found out it was canceled. Frustration, anger, and energy were prevalent. A fire was ready to explode. It just needed a spark. And it was time. And sure enough, a white bus driver gets into an argument with one of the rally goers. He raises his fist, triggering a fight that escalated. Futurism meets racism. The crowd chants, independence, independence, independence. The 400,000 people in Leopoldville was comprised of 25,000 Europeans and only 1,400 police. Rioting ensues. It gets ugly. The governor general sends in the police and using tear gas and guns starts to mow down the protesters. Someone said it was like using a hammer on a mosquito. Europeans joined the fray. It was bloody. The hospitals were busy that night. Meanwhile, two guys on a motorcycle drive through the fracas, Patrice Lumumba and Joseph Mobutu. 
though they've moved up the hierarchy of the colonists and were accepted by them for their education and westernization, they now felt solidarity with the crowd chanting, independence, independence, independence. The colonial governor immediately sent a representative to Belgium to convince the king to issue a policy paper regarding the riot, and it had to include the word independence. Fortunately, it did. It said independence was coming. Thus, political parties sprung up all over the country, tens of parties with varying leaders, alliances, and constituents. Remember, this country had over 250 tribes, varying natural resources, and varying cultures. Trying to unite the tribes, the political parties, and the different economic areas was a virtual impossibility. Lumumba tried to get some of the larger parties to unite in April 1959. Unrest and uncertainty continued. Then, in January 1960, 90 Congolese and 60 Belgians met in Brussels, Belgium for a roundtable meeting to discuss and develop the plan for independence. Someone threw out June 1st, 1960 as a target date. After some haggling, they settled on June 30th, 1960. Recognized that throughout Africa, numerous colonies were requesting for or fighting for independence from the European colonizing country at this time. Thus, Tremendous political pressure was put on Belgium to acquiesce. With only a few months' lead time, a transitional government had to be formed, a constitution written, a parliament and senate established, elections organized, and the like. Then, add in all the non-political stuff, like establishing a currency, creating postage stamps, driver's licenses, license plates, land registries, and so on and so forth. There wasn't much time to prepare, just a few months. The uncertainty of the transition, the personal safety, and the ability to keep peace caused many missionaries and their home office boards to recommend evacuation. What had been a peaceful country now became unstable, and the drumbeats for independence and revolution against the Belgians and other white people had begun. Here's a story of one missionary family's evacuation from Congo in 1960. Though they evacuated a few days after independence, their story is typical of many others during this challenging time in the Congo. Merle and Alita Wester lived in the Ubangi region, far from the center of the political unrest in Leopoldville, about 600 miles away. I grew up with the Wester family and went to school with all of their kids over the years at the Ubangi Academy, so I know the family well. They had been in Congo since 1955 doing pastoral work and had three children at the time. Communication wasn't the best, so here's how they got news of world events. We did listen to BBC, uh, you know, on the radio. and But I don't know if we really realized that there was a big problem within the country. They got the news delivered that it was time to evacuate. There goes my story of the Tandala chauffeur came over with a message from the Tandala missionaries that we were supposed to evacuate. The council, U.S. council, had uh, said that we should evacuate because of the problems, and they wanted all the U.S. citizens out of the country. And so uh, Lee and Joanne Hegel and Naomi Scoglund and us were at Wendy at that time. So uh, we all started packing up, and we thought perhaps we should be at Bao, maybe they weren't sure if we had to go all the way, or maybe at Bao we could stay overnight, you know, bring our camp cots and some food and all that kind of stuff along with us. So we were all night packing, 
at um, six in the morning, Merle and Lee went down to the village and told the people that we were supposed to evacuate. So we were all loaded up by eight o'clock and ready to go in the village people or the station people all came. We were having a pastor's conference at the time. So all the village pastors were there with us too. And they all had prayer together with us in our leaving and praying that, you know, the Lord would undertake for their country and that we would be able to come back quickly. So once out of Congo, the U.S. Air Force sprung into action. We all evacuated out to Bangui, of course, and we were there. And the Air Force had brought in people on their Air Force plane to to the Congo to help, I think, with this, that situation anyway. It came to uh, Bangui to get all the rest of us. The consulate decided that we should all leave. So they had the plane ready for all of us. Uh, women and children to leave, but the rest of the men all stayed, and they continued going back and forth into Congo. They'd go in for a few days and then come out to see how the church was doing and encourage them at that time, and uh, then go back out again. So it was kind of in and out. Being so far from the capital, was there concern for the safety of Merle and the other men that stayed behind? Oh, there was nothing in our area that we knew of. It was calm in our area. It was more around Kinshasa area and other areas, but not in our area. That's why they felt they could go in and out, you know, because they felt it was safe enough to do that. Their evacuation journey continued to bring Elita and the kids to the States. We flew flew up to Germany, and we were all sitting in these bucket seats in this great big Air Force airplane, Goldmaster airplane. So it was very interesting. Uh, of course, we all got sick over the desert, you know, but we landed in um, North Africa at an army base there. And uh, all the wives of the army base people, they came and uh, we got off the plane and they came and helped uh, clean us up and help at, even had clothes for the kids if they needed new clothes uh, if we didn't have enough and gave us food to eat. And then we continued on to Frankfurt, Germany, the Air Force base there. Some of the ladies were able to go right away, but I, uh, with my children, we were on my husband's passport so that I had to get a new passport. So that delayed our leaving it uh, an extra day to get the necessary papers. And then we came back to the States. Unfortunately, due to the unrest, the time apart lasted quite a while. Uh, we were apart uh, a year. He stayed on a year. For the Wester family and others far from the capital, Leopoldville, the political unrest fortunately didn't create any major safety concerns. Nonetheless, it was disruptive to many people and impacted their mission work in the medical, educational, and pastoral arenas throughout the country for over a year. Many of the Belgians and other Europeans predicted complete failure of the transitional government, so they sent their savings to Belgium, sold their assets, and or immigrated to other countries. That caused disruption to the industries, businesses, schools, and factories. The Belgians were leaving the following infrastructure for the new country's new leaders to manage and grow. 
8,700 miles of railroads, 40 airports, 100 hydroelectric and power plants. Congo was the world leader in industrial diamonds and the fourth largest copper producer. There were 300 hospitals. Over 1.7 million kids were in school learning how to read and write. But a good infrastructure doesn't a country make. Someone has to run it, right? So on Independence Day, there were only 16 university graduates. There was not a single Congolese officer in the army, nor was there even one physician, engineer, lawyer, agronomist, or economist. Brussels, Belgium, unknowingly released a play of forces that far exceeded its own ability to control. What appeared to be a step forward for the native Congolese, the breakneck emancipation of Congo was a tragedy that could only end in disaster. It was Thursday, June 30th, 1960. The Belgian Congo was officially born. Thus we conclude the first of a series on the history of Congo. From the 1800s, where King Leopold II of Belgium finagled his way to getting full personal control of the country, to the horrible exploitation of the people for ivory and rubber, to Belgium taking over in the early 1900s, until it cedes independence to the native Congolese in 1960. What should have been joy, freedom, democracy, and an ongoing improvement to their state for this newly formed country, instead began the slide into the first five years of its existence, called the First Republic. There were military mutinies, a huge exodus of Belgians, an invasion by the Belgian army, the United Nations came in, a constitutional crisis. Two provinces tried to secede, covering almost a third of the country. Then there was the imprisonment, escape, arrest, and murder of the Prime Minister. This just scratches the surface of the events during the first five years of the independent Belgian Congo. And that story will be told in part two of the series on the history of Congo. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. Hey, Malumuna.